You are listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10, 19 through 23, and uh, as you're turning there, we, we are doing this, we're studying Hebrews. Why? Because we want to know Jesus better. We want to love Jesus more, and we want to serve Jesus greater. We're coming to a point in Hebrews here in chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. It's it's another sort of pivotal point or pivotal moment in this letter. Uh, We've already had one of those. If you can recall a few weeks ago when we got into chapter 8, I talked about how that was a pivotal point in the letter uh, to this Jewish Hebrew community, Christian community, um, because it was after seven chapters of dealing with the superiority of Jesus and how he was greater than uh, the prophets and all the priests and greater than Moses and all the, the heroes of the faith that it transferred into he's greater because he's ushered in a better or greater covenant. And we looked at his role and his work in that transition. Uh, that was the, uh, the first uh, message out of chapters 8 was that message where I gave you that phrase, we have Jesus. And so that was a pivotal turning point for the letter to turn from the superior of Jesus to the work of Jesus. Now we have another pivotal point that from this point forward, 10, chapter 10 verses 19 and following really through the remainder of the letter, The writer is going to say, now because we have Jesus, and now because we have this new covenant, our lives should be different. I gave you this phrase a couple weeks ago by Warren Wiersbe, that the old covenant tried to change conduct, but the new covenant changed character. And that's true, but then there's an extension even from that phrase where we see that now that we are of a new character, our conduct now should be new as well. Some of you may have seen, like I've seen, there's an an ad on TV for this new um, weight loss app program thing called Noom, N-O-O-M. And, and I did some research on it because uh, uh, the, the claims that are being made on the thing, not that I'm interested in taking it and losing a bunch of weight necessarily, but I just wanted to see why did they say theirs is so different. And what I began to realize was they encompass this sort of whole life approach to weight loss and health, and they deal with the character of a person before they ever deal with food and meals, They have online counselors, they have online uh, um, psychiatrists and others that can help them. They talk about their emotional attachments to food. They talk about big life changes or big life events that maybe have occurred that uh, have led to like uh, really excessive weight gain. They do all that before they ever talk about nutrition or meals or anything else because they're intent on changing the character of the person before they then deal with changing how the person eats. And of course, if they did all that, and then the person's eating conduct didn't change, then they wouldn't sell many subscriptions to their app, would they? But the idea is that once they they deal with those emotional pieces of, uh, of a person and their eating habits and so on and so forth, then their conduct can change as well. It's the same thing for us. It's this pivotal moment where what we've said is this Jesus is superior to all these things. Because he's superior to all these things and all these people, he's ushered in this new covenant 
that was prophesied about in Jeremiah 31. And because of that, our character has been changed. Now our conduct should follow likewise. And so the first place that we're going to deal with a change in conduct is how we approach God. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. He writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The first point today is this, that we approach God with confidence. The way the new covenant and the promises of the new covenant and the work and the person of Jesus Christ change us in this first avenue or area of conduct in our life is we approach God with confidence. Um, the author of Hebrews gave us a, a foretaste of this, if you will, all the way back in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning verses 14 through 16. Let me refresh your memory. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. One of the first pieces of our conduct change because of our character change is that we approach God with confidence. What does confidence mean? Well, confidence in our culture often has these words attached to them. Brash, cocky, arrogant, full of yourself. And so perhaps because that's the way our culture sometimes views those things, we have difficulty thinking about approaching God with confidence. So this is one of those places in the scriptures where it helps us to understand what this English word that's translated confidence means. And what it means is honest, straightforward speech. It's transparency. It's not leaving anything to, to, to chance. It's not leaving anything for misunderstanding. Let me give you another example of where it's used. In Mark chapter 8, one of the three places where Jesus is teaching about his impending death to the disciples. Mark 8.31, he tells them what's going to happen and, and what's going to take place. And in Mark 8.32, Mark records his own words this way. He says of Jesus, and he said this plainly. Plainly there being the same word that the word confidence here is. So in other words, Jesus spoke to them plainly. He spoke to them transparently. He, he did not leave anything to the imagination. And so we approach with confidence plainly before God. Not holding anything back. I, I love that we opened up with that song this morning. Come just as you are. It's foolish to think we can approach God and somehow reserve a part or portion of our life from Him. It's foolishness. 
But because of Jesus, we don't have to do that anymore. We draw near with confidence. Now, some believe this action that the author in Hebrews is describing is the action of prayer. I don't think that's necessarily a wrong viewpoint. I just think it's insufficient. Because to believe that there's only one space in our lives or one place in our lives where we approach God with this confidence, with this transparency, with this openly, uh, this open nature, to think that's limited to one space in our life is insufficient to the complete work of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Look at how it says it here again in Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. He, he says we are drawing into or we are approaching or we are coming to the holy places. What did the holy place in the tabernacle, what did the holy place in the temple represent? It was the place where the high priest went into to offer the Day of Atonement sacrifice. It was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was placed, where the mercy seat sat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And more so, it was the place, according to Scripture, where God would meet them. In Exodus 25, chapter, uh, chapter 25, verses 21 and 22, as God is giving Moses uh, these understandings of the setting up the tabernacle and the importance of all these different places, he says of the Ark of the Covenant, and more specifically of the mercy seat, there I will meet you. In other words, it symbolized God's presence. And so when the author says we enter the holy places and he's taken great, great, planes, uh, great pains back in chapter 9, for example, to teach us that the holy places that Christ has entered are not places that have been made by human hands, but is the very presence of God himself. We enter those places with confidence. It, it can't be so compartmentalized that it's just in one segment of our life in prayer and nowhere else. Because Christ is forever in the presence of God. We are, as Paul writes in Colossians 3, seated with Christ forever in the presence of God. And so we approach God in such a way that we are forever approaching him with confidence, with transparency, with straightforward speech, coming as we are. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. He's dealing specifically here with the issue of sexual morality, but I think it's, uh, it's not beyond us to understand that the application of this teaching extends to all of our lives. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? That means in every facet, in every moment, in every aspect of our lives, We are continually in the presence of God through the presence of the Holy Spirit, through the work and person of Jesus Christ, and therefore we approach him with confidence, with transparency, with true, straightforward speech. That means we let him know what our best days look like, and we let him know what our worst days look like. That means we come to him with moments of praise, and we come to him with moments of extreme sadness. 
That we come to Him in moments where we are pretty sure we've got it all figured out and we come to Him in moments where we have to confess to Him, I don't have a clue as to what's going on here or how you're working. We approach Him with confidence. And how do we draw near? We draw near by Jesus. Look again at verses 20 and 21. It says, It's by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, we, we approach God with confidence through the new and living way that is Christ and through the new and living high priest that is Christ. There's, there's this there's peace in the Old Testament that I was referring to just a moment ago, that peace that's on the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. And it is the place where the blood was applied. It is the place where the, where the, the forgiveness was offered. And it is the place where God's presence dwelled. I will meet you there. There is a word used four times in the New Testament called propitiation, which is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament mercy seat. And in every usage, it has to do with Jesus. Let me read them to you. Romans chapter 3. Verses 23 through 25. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We love to quote that one, don't we? But then look at what he says. He doesn't have a period there. It's a comma. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In our very letter of Hebrews, back in chapter 2, he made this statement, beginning in verse 17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In 1 John 2, 1 and 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. And then later in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does all this tell us? It tells us that Jesus is the place where we meet God. Jesus is the place where our sins are forgiven. Jesus is the place where we are made clean and new before the Lord. He is our propitiation. He is our mercy seat. And He is the way that we draw near. The language that is used here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, the new and living way. This adjective new here is only used one time in all the scriptures. And it is literally a word that is a a compound word in the Greek that means freshly slain. It's a Greek word that they would have used to describe an animal that had been freshly killed. And so in using this word, what the author says is that it is as if the the, uh, appropriation or the application of the death of Jesus is just as new some 30 years later for these Hebrew Christians as it was on the day of his death. 
That for nearly 2,000 years later, in our day of 2021, that the death of Jesus is just as fresh in its application. Not that he's being continually killed, not that he's being continually sacrificed or crucified for our sins, but the effectiveness of it is today as if he was on the cross yesterday. And that it is by that new way that we have access to God. He says it's a new way, but look at what he says as well. It's a new and living way. Now that you know what the word new means there, you might think, well, slain things don't live. Things that have been freshly killed aren't alive. So he's pointing to the twofold composition of the work of Christ in that his effect of his death freshly slain is still active and appropriate but it is not a dead way but it is a living way because he was resurrected and lives now in the presence of God in the very holy of holies in the very heavenly temple where God resides and he intercedes for us the Holy Spirit works in us it is a new applicable and living way Because in Christ we have been given a resurrection power. We also draw near to him with faith. Look again at verse 22. It says, let us draw near in this confidence. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And he goes on to talk about our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. All statements that um, signified what a priest would often go through uh, being prepared to offer up the atonement. And essentially what he's saying to these Hebrew Christians is, you are as clean, you are as accepted as the high priest that once used to go into the Holy of Holies for you. But he says we do this, we do it with a full assurance of faith. There are many things in this world I do not understand. I do not understand mechanical engines, be it a lawnmower, a car, or anything in between. And if you could take it and you could take it apart and you could put all the pieces out and lay them all together and say, now this goes with this and this goes with this, and and Steve, you you need to put it back together, I just would throw my hands up at you and walk away. I just don't think that way. I don't understand it. I don't understand text messaging. How is it that I can type in my phone all these things and hit send and it goes to your phone traveling invisibly through the airwaves and shows up on your phone just like it showed up on mine? I don't understand it. But those and other things, I live by faith. I get in my car and I put my foot on the brake and I hit the start button on my car and I have faith that the engine's going to turn over and I'm going to be able to put it in drive and go somewhere. In faith, I type out text messages and hit send and have faith that you're going to receive them and read them and respond to them. Unless you don't have one of those phones, which means I have to call you. I have faith in that. And truth be told, there are times... I struggle with fully understanding this gospel. Truth be told, there are times on my worst days, and we all have them, we may not be so transparent as to tell each other we have them, but we all have them, 
That on my worst days, I think about the truth of the gospel, that this is what Jesus has done and that he's done this for me and it's changed my life and it's changed my character and it changes my conduct. And I think about that and I think, I don't understand how that works. That when an enemy pulls up something from my past and says, you could never be a, a Christian, much less a pastor. And I have to think about the gospel and how I don't understand how that works. I don't understand fully how that works. But I walk by faith that it works. I trust that it works. I have my assurance not based on my own life, not based on my own personal conduct or righteousness, but I have my faith in that what I say I believe, I believe by faith and it applies to me. Scottish missionary named John Patton back in the 1800s was um, in um, some island settings in the South Pacific of what is now known as Vanuatu. And as he was trying to translate the scriptures into their native languages, he realized he didn't have a word for faith. He couldn't, he couldn't find a word or a phrase in their language that translated over to faith. And the story is that he was in his room one day and he was studying and, and working through the scriptures and one of the native islanders came in that he knew really well and uh, I guess had been working outside or something and came in and, and plopped down in one of the chairs that he had in his room and the islander exclaimed, oh, it feels so good to fully rest my weight in this chair. And Patton knew then, he knew how to explain faith. Faith is that we fully rest our weight in the promises of God. We approach him with confidence. We approach him in a full assurance of faith. We do that because we can fully rest our weight in who he is, which is where the author takes us here in verse 23. We approach him with confidence because we stand firm in his promise. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast. Let us, let us approach with confidence. Let us do all this because we stand firm in his promise. The second issue of this change of conduct in our life has to do with perseverance. The first was how we approach God. We approach him with confidence. We approach him with transparency. We don't come masking anything. We don't come trying to reveal anything to him. We approach him in full confidence knowing that we can rest our weight in the fullness of the truth of the gospel and we do so because we stand firm in his promise. We persevere in it. We've already seen this through the letter of Hebrews. Chapter 2, verse 1, don't drift away. Chapter 3, verse 6, hold fast our confidence. Chapter 3, verse 14, hold our original confidence firm to the end. We just read chapter 4, 14, hold fast our confession. We hold fast on all these things because he is faithful. And perseverance runs through this letter just like this issue of faith. They're one, they're linked inseparably to that. When you originally came to faith in Christ, my guess is that you held on to that faith unwaveringly. But as life has happened, as events have transpired, as people have turned on you, just as something as simple as all the voices that 
that, that are pulling at us in our culture in a hundred different directions. The reality is our faith tends to begin to waver a little bit. And so here it's a moment of encouragement for these persons to hold fast. Hold fast the confession of our hope. And simply put, this hope, this confession of the hope is the confession and the profession of faith and hope in Jesus Christ as given to us by the gospel. It is both public and it is private meaning we hold fast to it in our private moments and we hold fast to it in our public moments. It doesn't mean we have to put on a happy face. It doesn't mean we have to put on a a, a facade. But we draw near to God through Jesus Christ and we hold fast the confession of our hope. And this hope acknowledges a future hope. When Paul is writing about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he's speaking specifically to some who were making the claim that Christ actually had not risen from the dead. And he goes into this long spiel in in chapter 15 about if he hasn't risen from the dead, we're all still in our sins. If he hasn't risen from the dead, the gospel has no meaning. But he makes this statement specifically in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 19, and he says this, If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. Meaning, if if your faith, my faith, if your hope, my hope, if if our resting our weight in the gospel is just for this life only and does not incur a future hope, then we are living a very, very sad life. And to that future hope, I would say to us, Stop falling in love with this world. Stop believing that any economic system, social system, political system has any hope for you outside of the person of Jesus Christ. Believe, let your whole weight rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ that includes with it a hope for a future that is greater than anything you and I can experience here. We've, we've been trying to make plans for a vacation next year, hopefully, that we can take. And I, I think we're going to end up going to, to the Montana area and, and driving down to see Yellowstone, the Grand Tetons, and those kinds of things. And I've been looking at those pictures, and I'm going, oh, my gosh, I can't wait to see that. Like, I want to be there. I, I want to see that grizzly. I want him to be far away, but I want to see that grizzly bear, right? And I have to remind myself, that if this is my last breath on earth right now, the future hope that I have is so much greater than any of those pictures could represent. If my hope is only for this life, I need pity. You should feel sad for me if the promises of the gospel only applies to this life, but it does not. It applies to this life and beyond. And he says, because of the surety of that, because we can rest our hope in that in full assurance, we do so, he says, verse 23, hold fast that confession of hope without wavering. Again, this this word wavering is a really cool word. If you haven't figured out now in almost four years, I like the etymology. I like to get into the Greek and Hebrew and figure out what they mean because sometimes just seeing in English doesn't do justice. And this word wavering is a word that is a Greek word, aklines. 
kleine is from the Greek word klino, which means to uh, lean forward or lean back or bow or essentially any action except just standing straight up. And so the author uses the prefix ah here to essentially be a prefix that says just the opposite of what klines means. So think about our English word antifreeze, right? Freeze means one thing, anti means the opposite. So he says we hold on to this without wavering, that is we hold on to this confession of hope without leaning back without bending over, without going from side to side, without being unstable. We hold on to it standing up, standing firm, knowing that God's promises are real. And we struggle with this as they struggled with that because in this world we are forever involved in a spiritual tug of war. A tug of war with forces that want us to lean backwards. A tug of war with forces that want us to go side to side. A tug of war with forces that want us to be unstable in our faith, in our hope. And he says, because God is faithful. Because we we love his promises. We stand straight. And we stand firm as we hold on to this. And again, why do we do this? Why are we able to do this? Look, look at that last phrase of verse 23 as we begin to close. We do this for he who promised is faithful. We don't draw near to God with confidence. We don't draw near to God with assurance. We don't hold on to the confession of our hope and faith in the gospel and the work and person of Jesus Christ because of our track record. Because our track record track track record stinks. It does. Anybody in here able to say you never broke a promise? Anybody in here able to say you never remained your word? We all can say we've never remained true to our word completely. We all can say Promise. We all can say that we set out to do something and did something else, but God's promises are forever. They are etched. They are faithful. They are good. And the birth of Christ was a promise made long ago through the prophets. One will come from the root of Jesse. One will come from the line of David. The Messiah will come. The birth was a promise and it came to be. The death was a promise. That one would give his life, that one would would yield, that one would be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and by his stripes we would be healed, not simply physically, but spiritually into an eternal life. The resurrection was a promise that that same suffering servant would not see death. And if God has made good on all of those promises, why would we expect or even entertain the thought that on another one he might not come through? Because we have all these voices, we have all these things of this world pulling at us, trying to get us to bend, trying to get us to lean back, trying to get us to go side to side. And we don't stand firm. We don't hold on unwaveringly. We draw near. We draw near with confidence. We draw near with assurance. We draw near 
holding on to the hope of God and who he is. And we do all that through Jesus. If you, if you try to draw near through your own religious works, you're going to fail. If you try to draw near through your own family heritage and tradition, you're going to fail. If you try to draw near because you've been in 20 consecutive church directories, you're going to fail. But if you draw near through Jesus, if you let him change your character and your conduct follows, and you approach him with confidence and you approach him with assurance, you rest your full weight in the chair of his gospel and you hold fast to him because the one who promised is faithful you will succeed. Draw near to him in your hopes and your hurts. Draw near to him in your joys and your pains. Draw near to him in your assurances and your doubts. In all of life, draw near, for he is faithful. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.